You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment, coming to you live from the 2023 AUKUS Annual Meeting. I'm Jenna Bernstein, a private practice hip and knee surgeon from Fairfield, Connecticut with Connecticut Orthopedics. My name is Jesse Wolfsat, and I'm an arthroplasty surgeon hailing from Mount Sinai Hospital in the University of Toronto. Today, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Kevin Bozik. Dr. Bozik is a chair of the Department of Surgery and Perioperative Care at UT Health Austin, uh, Dell Medical School. He's also the current president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. He obtained his MD at UCSF, his MBA at Harvard, and did his orthopedic residency at the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program. Followed this with an orthopedic trauma fellowship at Mass General Hospital and an adult recon fellowship at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Bozik is an internationally recognized leader in value-based healthcare and, and delivery models. Thank you so much for being with us today. Wow, Thank I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted listening to the bio. <laughs> yeah. So as orthopedic surgeons, when we hear value-based care, I think most of us start thinking about bundle payment, especially driven by procedures. Are we missing something? And what's the current status of value-based care in arthroplasty surgery? Yeah, great question. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. The first thing I'll say is that I think the term value in healthcare gets misconstrued. I think if you asked a lot of the people in this hall what that term means, they think it means cost containment and reducing costs in healthcare. There's a lot of health systems, hospitals, payers that have value initiatives that are around cost containment, standardization of implants, and things like that. The value framework was originally introduced by Michael Porter and Elizabeth Teisberg in their book, Redefining Healthcare in 2006. And it was intended as a framework for competition to facilitate competition based on value delivered to patients rather than the way competition occurs in healthcare today. I think the biggest misnomer is the lack of understanding that we don't create value unless we improve health. If you believe that value is defined by the health we create for the dollars we spend to create that, if you don't create health, value is zero. And that's what people fail to understand and appreciate. I also think it gets immediately attached to payment models. And while I would say that the delivery model and the way you deliver care is what drives value, and then you need a payment model to incentivize and reward and sustain that because if you try to deliver high value care in a fee-for-service environment, it's not compatible. I would say that the payment model is a secondary effect. The the primary focus of value-based care is changing the delivery model in a way that optimizes health from the patient's perspective. On that note, one of the ideas that I've heard attributed to you is a notion that we're not hip and knee surgeons were hip and knee doctors and we look after the full spectrum of care of hip and knee disorders. When did you first realize the importance of that perspective on patient care? So good question. I guess I would reframe that slightly that we are in the business of musculoskeletal health. And so when you talk about musculoskeletal health, surgery is a part of that. It's not necessarily the biggest contributor to musculoskeletal health. However, as surgeons, we are best equipped at doing the surgery part of musculoskeletal care, and and that's where I think we belong. 
but we need to be integrated with teams that are more facile at managing musculoskeletal health at the population and the individual level. Musculoskeletal health should not be managed primarily by orthopedic surgeons. They're not good at it and it's frustrating for us and it's not fully utilizing our skills. But I do think we have to understand that that's the context that we exist in, is we exist in the musculoskeletal health arena. One quick example is if you look at the fastest growing segment of musculoskeletal health right now, it's direct to employer contracting for virtual physical therapy and virtual musculoskeletal health. And the whole premise of that industry is to keep patients away from orthopedic surgeons. It's become a multi-billion dollar industry and we are on the outside looking in at that. And so we've lost the trust of the public, of primary care physicians and of the payers to be able to effectively manage musculoskeletal health. And the value framework gives us an opportunity to re-engage in the ecosystem of musculoskeletal health. Can you tell us a bit about the multidisciplinary approach that you've sort of pioneered and developed at the Dell Medical School? Yeah, and so we were very fortunate in that when I came to Austin, we started a practice from scratch. So I didn't have an orthopedic surgery practice that I had to overhaul in a way that optimizes value for patients. So you start by looking at what are the needs of the population with people who have musculoskeletal ailments, injuries, what are the things that they need? Well, most of them need some sort of lifestyle modification. Many of them need sort of an activation strategy is what I like to call it. They need to be understand that their musculoskeletal health is most dependent on them and what they do, both in terms of their lifestyle, their behaviors, exercise, those sorts of things. You need probably someone who understands the behavioral health aspects of dealing with a chronic illness like a musculoskeletal illness like arthritis because it has significant impact on our mental health so you need people that understand that and then if you go down the line you start with all of the people who have a musculoskeletal complaint lifestyle modification would be first a certain percentage of those patients will then end up doing some sort of manual or self-guided therapy a percentage of those patients will be on some sort of medication, either prescription or over-the-counter. A subset of that will end up going on to some sort of injectional therapy, and a very small percentage will end up having orthopedic surgery of all the people that have musculoskeletal complaints. So starting with orthopedic surgeons on the front lines managing that is not a good model. It's not a good model for us because it's frustrating. We end up trying to do primary musculoskeletal care, which we're not really well equipped for. And we also end up frustrating the patients because we have two options, surgery or sorry. So we, what we did is we developed a team of professionals that can manage all aspects of the physical and mental health manifestations of musculoskeletal illness, which includes some orthopedic surgeons, but very few compared to what you'd think you need. It includes advanced practice providers who are experts in musculoskeletal health, have a ex specific expertise in that, physical therapists, chiropractors, behavioral health trained social workers, dietitians, and a few orthopedic surgeons. So who's the front line? So a patient calls, they say, I have knee pain. Are they getting an appointment with you? Are someone pre-screening them? How do you decide how to triage them? Great question. So in a typical orthopedic practice, that would be 
okay, let's go through a list of questions to see if, you know, it's going to be a good use of my time to talk to you. Have you tried this and the other? Have you talked to another surgeon, et cetera, et cetera? We want that patient, the minute that they say my knee or shoulder hurts, to come into our musculoskeletal practice. They will not likely see a surgeon the first time they come in and say my knee, my shoulder, my back hurts. It's probably not appropriate and it's, it's frustrating for the surgeon and the patient. But if you, again, think about from a value perspective, there is a lot of unnecessary and inappropriate treatment done to those patients outside of the musculoskeletal care environment before they end up in our office, whether that's inappropriate imaging, whether that's injectional therapy that's not evidence-based. There's lots and lots of inappropriate services that are done really with good intent, and they're also done to try to keep patients away from orthopedic surgeons. And so if we can get to that patient sooner in our musculoskeletal medical home, we have the expertise because all we treat is musculoskeletal disease. We can apply evidence-based treatments and avoid some of that inappropriate utilization, and we can have a team of people managing them before they get to the orthopedic surgeon, but they are part of a musculoskeletal medical home. And all those people work in the same office, they are all together, so because the, you don't know necessarily what they're gonna come in. Sometimes I'm surprised by someone I thought was gonna have trochebursitis comes in with you know really severe hip arthritis. Great, yeah, great question. So we do a couple things. We do something called a huddle in the morning, and we each of our APPs gets a half a day a week in their schedule to prep for the huddle, so about four hours. And they get all the information they can on every patient, whether it be from their primary care physician, the referring doctor, it could be their, their PROs, which hopefully we had ahead of time, any imaging they've had. And we try to put together a story so that we know, okay, this patient has a BMI of 44 and screen positive for depression. We know that the, the behavioral health trained social worker is gonna be involved in that patient and we know the dietitian is gonna be involved. So we can map out our day. It's never 100%. We find things that we weren't aware of, but that level of preparation makes the day go much smoother for everyone. And yes, everyone is co-located. Everyone is there um, in the, we, we call it the sort of a bullpen and we're all together. We have an electronic flow sheet that tells us where the patient is and where the different clinicians are and whether they need a, a physical therapist or a surgeon or a, an APP or a dietitian. But I think that integration and co-location is key. We did learn during the pandemic that you can achieve some of that integration virtually. So our dietitian actually never came back to work after the pandemic. She works remotely, but we can zoom her in right there in real time when the patient's in the room. I hate to bring it back to funding, but, but I got to ask, like, where, where do you get the funding to, you know, maintain a program like this? Because I would love to do this at our center, but, but I can just see our admin saying, like, sure, you can give up half your salary to do this. So, okay, a couple things. First of all, we are a very, very small practice. And so we are four orthopedic surgeons, although there are 28 people in our practice, and none of us are full-time clinicians. And so you can do this in a very small practice. A dietitian, a registered dietitian, probably costs you sixty to $70,000 a year. And even if you're in a fee-for-service model, you can easily bill sixty dollars to $70,000 a year in nutrition consults. But if you're in a, a, a bundle payment model, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's not only a nice to have, it's an absolute necessity because if you're trying to treat and manage risk for patients that are obese and have weight issues and you don't have anybody that knows how to do that, you're putting yourself at risk. We have behavioral health trained social workers. You don't need a psychiatrist. So, and they cost somewhere around $60,000 a year. 
If you think about it, amortize it over a practice of even 10 orthopedic surgeons. If you never had to talk to a patient who was depressed again, um, the 10 of you split the $60,000 a year to hire a behavioral health chain social worker who can manage that part of your practice. It's not as expensive as people think. But the real solution is to change the payment model. We have a condition-based bundled payment where we are actually paid for all of those services up front, and then we allocate the services as necessary. So it's at that point, we're making a margin on that bundled payment, and that funds all those other services. That's about 30% of our practice. 70% is fee-for-service. We still do it in the fee-for-service patients because we don't distinguish and we don't treat anyone differently. But in the fee-for-service model, it's a little more cumbersome. Patients may have multiple co-pays in a single visit, and we have to check what their insurance will cover and things like that. But we do it for all comers. And it's, it, it really isn't that expensive. It's way cheaper than hiring an orthopedic surgeon, I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm in a private practice model, and I get a lot of patients come to see me because they went to the practice across town, they saw the PA three times, they never got to see the orthopedic surgeon, and so they come to see me. And that's the one thing I worry about, that some of these patients will be dissatisfied with, well, I tried to see the doctor and they never let me see the doctor and I went somewhere else, which is different when you're in an academic center versus in like a pure private practice. How do you kind of mitigate that? Yeah, so I think our patients are the same. We have a, first of all, when they, when they call to make an appointment with Dr. Bozik, they're told they're gonna, they're gonna have an appointment with the musculoskeletal team which includes Dr. Bozik. Second of all, we have a video that we show them at the beginning of the appointment that explains the team concept and that they get way, way more than they would if the only person that they see is the doctor and the doctor is available to see every single patient. And I might go in even just to say, hi, I agree with you know what my colleague said, but I'm not the one taking the history, doing the physical exam, all those sorts of things. So I think it's how you message it. But when you have a practice that you are providing that level of support that goes beyond what the orthopedic surgeon can provide, most patients are very, very appreciative of that. And it doesn't mean that they don't have access to the orthopedic surgeon. It's not like some practices where they have a PA clinic and they're going to see, they're going to see the team, which includes the orthopedic surgeon. And if they want to see the orthopedic surgeon, they're right there. But we structure it in a way that the most appropriate people for that patient's needs are the ones that are first seeing in them and then bring other people in as, as needed. It almost sounds like concierge medicine to me. It seems like something that would be effective in like almost a cash model for those of us who aren't in these kind of care-based bundle payments yet. Has that been tried? The most common way I've seen it implemented in a private practice setting, we teach a, a course where people come down and spend two days with us and they've gone out and done this, is they do it as almost like an ancillary service. So they have a musculoskeletal medical home that is over here and then they still have their private practice, orthopedic practice. It just so happens that medical home out the other side comes patients who are appropriate to meet with a surgeon. So it's a very rewarding thing. And the best population to do this in is, for instance, a managed Medicaid population for a couple reasons. One, most private practices don't want those patients. They're very socially and medically complex and they don't pay well in fee-for-service. So you don't have much competition. Second, they're treated very, very inappropriately. So there's lots of money to be made by doing things appropriately instead of inappropriately. And they have the most complex social health. So all of those services are utilized and beneficial. So 
Our biggest population is what we call our medical assistance program. It's our medically indigent, which in other states would be called Medicaid. We're in a red state, doesn't have Medicaid expansion. But those that's our best population, and it's our highest margin book of business because we are treating them more appropriately and more evidence-based and providing all the other services that they need, not just the orthopedic surgery part. How do we get this everywhere? One thing I'll say is the concept of competing based on value for patients isn't unique to this magic model that we have. It requires a focus on the things that matter to patients. So patients' health, which for us is pain, functional status, quality of life. So your business intelligence is an understanding of how the things that you do impact pain, functional status, quality of life. So you need a way to measure that. You need to understand your costs. We do time-driven activity-based costing, so we really understand what the full cost of providing that care is. And then you need to integrate some of the more common services that patients with musculoskeletal complaints would access, so behavioral health and weight management being two. We sort of have a a 60-40 rule. If at least 60% of our patients are going to benefit from that service, we embed it. And if it's 10% or less, like rheumatology, we don't have them embedded on our team. We have them connected. So you can do this even if you decided just to connect and integrate with a dietitian that's not in your practice, but somebody who's on your EHR that devotes part of their time to your team, you can start doing these sorts of things. So I don't think it's an all or nothing by any means. I think you can implement just patient report outcome measurement. You can implement experimenting with alternative payment models. You can implement with integrating some social services into your care model, but you don't have to do all of them at once. You talked today at the business meeting about how setting up this model and operating with a high-functioning team really impacts surgeon wellness, which I found to be really a novel idea and something that made perfect sense, but I really hadn't thought of before. Can you talk more about how you kind of came to that conclusion and if you've seen that implemented by other people? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I've been talking about value-based healthcare for over 20 years, and my message has evolved over time. But what I realized is trying to say that this is the right thing to do for society wasn't a good message. There aren't any physicians that don't think they're doing the right thing for their patients or for society. Nobody feels that they're doing things inappropriately. I sort of stumbled on this and it was actually a fellow that was spending a year with us that sort of noticed the very low turnover that we have on our team and also noticed how happy everyone is at work and said, this isn't normal. This isn't what I'm used to experiencing (laughs) in other places. And I thought, wow, this is really addressing that moral injury problem where the disconnect between the burden and the purpose of your work. And so I started saying, now I understand that this is actually brings joy into practice. And that's a much better sales pitch to orthopedic surgeons and other clinicians is it's it's not that this is the right thing to do for society. It's going to make your life the life of your team, and certainly the life of your patients a lot better. So I'm glad you asked that question. I sort of came to it serendipitously, but I'm very glad we did. And that's my primary focus and message now when I talk about value-based. It's a hard thing right now with all the staffing issues to find the right people that are committed to the work, that want to work hard. And to retain them. And to retain them. And, And I'm not sure how to solve that problem. I mean, I'm pretty new in my new private practice and I have found that to be one of the more difficult parts. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the delivery model. So 
If you are hiring a physician assistant to be the assistant to the physician, that's a hard sell and there's a lot of competition. They expect a high salary and very favorable work hours. If you hire someone and we spend about three months training them in musculoskeletal medicine before they start on their own, and we say, you went to school to be a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, you're actually gonna be a primary musculoskeletal clinician and you're gonna be the front line and I'm gonna be behind you, not I'm in front and you're behind me. That's a very rewarding model to practice in. People seek us out and that's why our, again, why our turnover is so low because they're doing the things that they enjoy doing. They're functioning at the top of their license. On that same token, I recently had the chance to go and see Bob Booth operate and all of his staff just seemed so empowered. They could speak up, they enjoyed their work. And I think if you give people roles and empower them to play an active part in patient's care, it really, they see value out of that and so obviously money often talks and it's helpful to be able to bonus people and that's a little bit difficult when you're working with unionized providers but you know I think empowering them and making them a valuable part of the team is so great. I think regardless of what practice model you function in or whether you're you know running a business or you're a parent if you're going to delegate and empower people, then you have to step back and not micromanage them. So I learned this when I became president of the AOS is I couldn't do that job and be effective in my day job. So I had to delegate to people around me and not the things that I didn't like doing, but the things that would help them become better leaders and grow. And sometimes they'll make decisions that I might not agree with. And my tendency would be to say, why'd you do that? That was really dumb. To say, I, the, the medical assistant is gonna do all the triage and decide which patients go where. I can't step in and say, you, you made a mistake there. This patient should have been here. I've gotta let her do her job. And then accept the, the consequences you learn from each other and you continuously learn. But I think the hardest part of what you just described is letting go and stepping back. That's not our instinct as surgeons. We like to be in control. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and, you know, as AOS president, but also as an arthroplasty surgeon, there's some divided interests, right? So AOS obviously represents the interest of all orthopedic surgeons and AUKUS is focused on surgeons who perform arthroplasty. So where do you think our goals of advocacy overlap and where do they diverge and how do we kind of keep working together towards common goals? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So one thing I think that is not very well understood by the general public or even our members is the AUS is made up of two organizations. An American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which is a 501c3, which exists for the greater good and exists as a benefit to society. So we in that 501c3 cannot actually advocate for orthopedic surgeons. We have a 501c6, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, that advocates for the interests of our specialty. And I can answer your question more broadly. At times, the goals of both organizations are aligned and at times they are in direct tension. And so I wouldn't say that when it comes to AAHKS and, and AAOS, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, I can't think of a single example where our advocacy goals have, have diverged. And we work very, very closely with Josh and his team and our Office of Government Relations. But I can think of examples where our advocacy goals diverge with our 501c3 goals. And one example is our evidence-based clinical practice guidelines, which are frequently criticized because they may make a statement that certain things that we do as orthopedic surgeons are not effective. And that is the right thing to do for society, but it may have a detrimental impact or perceived as having a detrimental impact by orthopedic surgeons on their income. 
So I would say that's where the tension exists between the C3 and the C6, not between AAOS and, and AUKUS or other specialty societies. You were uh, instrumental in starting the AJRR through the American Academy. Right now, where do you think we're at in terms of collection, completeness, things that we're missing, and what the future holds? Yeah. So let me just clarify, I was the founder of the California Joint Replacement Registry, which got folded into the American Joint Replacement Registry, and I subsequently became the chair of the American Joint Replacement Registry. But the, the founders were David Llewellyn, Bill Maloney, John Callahan, and Dan Barry. So I stand on the shoulders of giants and followed in their footsteps. I think the goals of our registry, and our board has been spending a fair bit of time on this recently, we intend that to be a member value that you can have access to data that will help you improve as an orthopedic surgeon. We have not achieved that goal yet. So where we need to be focusing our efforts is to, if to give you actionable data that you can log into your dashboard and see your performance, your institution's performance relative to others. We're not there yet. and so. We need to shift our focus from nice research reports, which we do, and those can be beneficial, those can help our practices, to making these tools and these dashboards more meaningful for orthopedic surgeons, for their practices, for their institutions. And that's really the next, the next um, iteration. If you look at the more mature registries around the world, England and Wales, Scotland, Australia, Scandinavia, they are much better at doing that and delivering that level of clinician in practice in or institution level data that you can use to meaningfully compare yourself and hopefully improve. You know, the public reporting of physician level data is a little bit controversial. And the Marquee, the Michigan Arthroplasty Collaborative, is a great example, I think, of, of successful quality improvement that's come out of public reporting of physician level data. However, others obviously have pushed back a little bit on the appropriateness. Wondering if you can touch upon the advantages and disadvantages and where you think the future of public reporting of yeah. physician level data So lies. it's, as you point out, it's a controversial topic and it's something that, that scares physicians. And I'll answer this by saying the group that has done this the best of anyone in the world is the Society for Thoracic Surgeons. They've had databases since the early 1990s. They sell their data to Consumer Reports for $60 million a year that funds all their registry efforts. And Consumer Reports publishes publicly all of the comparison of all the institutions that do cardiac and thoracic surgery. So why can they do that? Because they have very sophisticated risk adjustment models that they will tell you, the, the cardiac surgeons will tell you, if you operate on all low acuity patients and you have a single death, you will have a lower rating than someone who has a 40% mortality rate that operates on higher acuity patients. So what the problem that we have in orthopedics is all of us say, my patients are sicker, my patients are more complicated. That's not being taken into account. And that's because we haven't done the hard work to build the risk adjustment models the way the cardiac surgeons do. I would give the same example in college football. If, if you have an undefeated team that has a weaker schedule than a one-loss team, they won't be in the playoff and the one-loss team will because they risk adjust for the strength of schedule. We can do the same thing in orthopedics, but we have to be more quantitative and also be willing to accept the results of the risk adjustment models. We all have a sense that our patients are sicker and that's not being accounted for, the social risk factors, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where, that's the, the piece that we need to tackle to get people more comfortable with public reporting. 
So full disclosure, YAG is pretty powerful, but we don't have the power to get the Longhorns into the college football playoffs. So I appreciate the anecdote with uh, the college football playoffs. We might not playoffs. need your help. We might get there on our own. Yeah, you just got to get your certain quarterback back. Yes. Although you have a few others potentially yes. jump in. All right, so I think we are running out of time. So I'm going to throw in one final question. Advice to young surgeons who are interested in getting more involved with AOS or leadership, how to start off and, and how to get involved. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think we're very fortunate in orthopedics that we have a lot of organizations, AAOS, AUKUS, AOA, other specialty societies that do good work, but they provide leadership development opportunities that I don't think people fully appreciate. I am in the position that I'm in because I was given some of those leadership development opportunities early on and I took advantage of them. I don't think people fully capitalize on and look at all of the leadership development opportunities that are out there. I did a North American Traveling Fellowship, an ABC Traveling Fellowship. I did an OREF research traveling fellowship. I participated in the AUS Leadership Fellows Program. These are all things that are available that not only benefit you if you want to become president of AUKUS or the AUS, but help you become a better leader that are going to help in all aspects of your job and all aspects of your life. We have AUS, we have resident positions on committees, we have candidate member positions for people that are right out of fellowship and, and aren't yet board certified, and then we have active fellow positions. We have emeritus member positions. So I would say, you know, search on our committee appointment program website. There's always a need for volunteers in a, in a variety of different areas. AUKUS offers the same opportunity. I think people are intimidated and they say, well, gee, I'm not good enough to be, you know, I'm not going to be Jenna Bernstein or Jesse Wolfer. I'm, I'm not as famous as them or as well connected as them. And they sort of step back and that's how you got in these positions, by stepping forward and, and getting involved. And I think there's way more opportunities out there than people take advantage of. They're also your mentors, right? So everybody has mentors from their training that have connections and have been in various roles. They can help advocate for you, but it requires you to be proactive and take that first step and reach out and express interest. And for me, it's been the most rewarding part of my career. Being president of the AEOS is an absolute privilege and an honor. People say, oh, you poor guy, you travel every weekend, blah, blah, blah. I think that leadership is about service and service is so rewarding. And when you're able to go around the world and, and meet people from all over the world and talk to them about what you do and the talk I was able to give today at the business course, it's a privilege. And I think that yes, it's a time commitment, but there's no better way to give back all of us are very, very privileged and fortunate where we are in our lives and it was hard work that got us here, but this is an opportunity to give back and make the profession better and that's incredibly rewarding. The rewards I get from giving back are more than what I give to the organization. Amazing. Thank you to Dr. Bozik for joining us today. For more information on the AUKUS Young Arthroplasty Group, please check out the AUKUS website, www.aukus.org, and follow us on Twitter at AUKUS underscore YAG. We hope your augment always fits the defect. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.